Professor St. John is a news commentator and journalist. He's a columnist also. He does commentary for the CBS Spectrum series. He's also the host of his own radio show on Sunday afternoons from 12 to 3, WMCA, at 70. This is Sunday with St. John. Mr. Childs is a freelance writer, frequent contributor to a number of libertarian publications. The author of some very controversial works, such as uh, Objectivism in the State and articles of that nature. The subject of the debate will be anarcho-capitalism versus limited government. Mr. St. John will be speaking on behalf of the limited government position. Mr. Childs will be speaking on behalf of the uh, anarcho-capitalist The format for the debate will be each person will deliver a, approximately a 10 opening remark and a five-minute rebuttal, followed by questions from the audience. I ask you to keep the questions brief, not to engage in debate or argument with the two participants, but to pretty much ask a question and leave it to the two parties up here to engage in the debating and dialogue. I request that the speakers, or I'll do it as far as the debate, repeat the questions from the audience who are having trouble picking them up on these tapes. Uh, we'll begin, I think Mr. St. John will make the opening remarks. Good morning and good afternoon. Can everyone hear me? to free entrepreneurship and enterprise. 
Historically, anarchy in revolution and civil wars has often allied themselves with totalitarians like communists. They have often been proven to be the crucial catalyst for the development of dictatorship. Anarcho-capitalists say they are against dictatorship. Good. But yet, Prince Peter Kropotkin, the Russian anarchist intellectual philosopher, must have been certainly shocked and saddened in his advanced age when in 1918, Leon Trotsky ordered the Moscow headquarters of the International Anarchist Association shelled and ultimately had the anarchist movement in Russia suppressed. And as we know, the anarchist movement played a crucial part in paving the way power for the Bolsheviks. Now, it must have been a shock, I think, to some of the anarchists who were very crucial participants in the Spanish Civil War in the 30s in Spain to find that their alliance with the communists turned to a hideous nightmare of murder repression by the Moscow-directed Stalinists in a place that George Orwell would later enshrine in history and immortalized in his work, Homage Catalonia. Now, anarcho-capitalists advocate, advocates claim that an abhorrence of the tactics of terrorism, the initiation of force and bloodletting that has punctured the history of anarchy. Now, have I in this deep thumbnail stuck to you done a injustice to the anarcho-capitalist point of view? Well, some anarcho-capitalists have spoken rather approvingly, I might add, of the new left, who has, as a matter of record, emulated philosophically and tactically many of the revolutionary movements and anarchists which I briefly touched on. So, I'm only taking the definition of anarcho-capitalism at its word. I'm not trying to deviate from their basic definition. Now, it would seem to me that the anarcho-capitalists are making a grievous error, understandable as it might be, in calling themselves anarcho-capitalists, particularly using the word libertarian. Now, anarchy is not a very pleasant word by reason of the fact that some of the historical facts which some of us are familiar with, which I just pointed out. It seems to me, furthermore, that calling oneself a libertarian is in conflict with the term anarchy, if you accept my earlier thumbnail historical sketch. Libertarian, of course, meaning the doctrine of free will and one who upholds the principle of liberty, especially in thought and action. Now, we know that liberty is, is only an abstraction. It cannot be validated and made visible by concrete expression. It seems to me, in looking at anarcho-capitalism, that it cannot ensure the protection of any right. The limited government can. Now, why do I claim this? First, looking at the historical consequences of anarchy in practice. Not in theory, but in practice. And second, and perhaps most crucial, is the issue of how men and women use their minds. We may have forgotten that historically, anarchists have always seen men as basically good. That by their nature, they were basically decent, potentially rational people. I reject this assertion. Man is neither good nor bad. What determines his character is how he uses his consciousness. If an anarcho-state is a 
a good assumption that there will, in, in, in a, a state of anarcho-capitalism, as it's theoretically outlined by its proponents, uh, it is an assumption that in any kind of state, anarcho-capitalism or not, there are some individuals that are going to act irrationally. They are going to violate man's rights. Those who believe in the concept of anarcho-capitalism admit it. They say, yes, it is true. Morris and Linda, Linda Tannenhill bring out this point very early in their book, Market for Liberty. The solution they offer seems to me worse than the than the uh, than the problem that they seek to cure. That is a, the concept of competing police force or defense agency. Strangely, anarcho-capitalists object to the exclusive nuclear force held by the all-powerful states, but seeing this, what it appears to the great intellectual East advocate non-exclusive or multiple use of force among competing groups to offer protection of individual and property rights. This anarcho-capitalist position rules out of the arena of at least intellectual discussion to discuss the idea, to not be dogmatic about I am right and you are wrong, but to offer, as this conference was intended, to offer discussion of conflicting ideas. It seems to me in reading the literature of the anarcho-capitalist movement that it rules out entirely an intellectual discussion that a morally objective, limited government is possible, or for that matter, that it's even worth a debate. Now, in other words, they rule out the possibility, ladies and gentlemen. They rule out the possibility that men can use their minds to fashion theoretical concepts of limited government that can be concretized in a constitutional form that has as its sole function the protection of rights. On the reverse side of this intellectual coin is the attitude and understandable loathing for the all-powerful state. It seems to me, looking at this problem, that the anarcho-capitalist advocates make a major mistake by assuming that all we've got to do, and it's a mistake that is, that's very common I think today, there's the assumption that all we have to do is sweep away the apparatus of the state. Sweep away the apparatus of the state but not deal fundamentally with the ideas that make the all-powerful state possible. Now they claim, they claim that they deal with these ideas. It seems to me, as an observer, that the anarcho-capitalist system assumes that form and structure of the state is the real enemy and not the ideas that give the state character that give it its vertebrae, its tone, its oppressive nature. As the Tannen Hills, however, state in their work, to paraphrase, the force which takes men's lives is rational ideas. Maybe we should add irrational ideas, too. Therefore, it would seem to me that the anarcho-capitalists should want to consider overthrowing not the state, but the collectivist philosophy, which sustains it, 
seems to me, moreover, that the advocating of any other position in a limited form of government with a philosophical precondition for that political concept, namely a libertarian non-violent educational and philosophical approach, and rejecting the position of anarchy and revolutionary violence, is the alternative open, but in shaping the future. For the histories of revolutions which anarchy has played such a deadly and decisive part, has almost exclusively ended in posing a far more tyrannical rule than it attended to the plant. Now, it seems to me, moreover, that the abstract capitalist can never guarantee liberty or property rights without a limited form of government that contains an objective legal framework. I have yet to see where you could validate the concept of individual rights and property rights within the anarcho-capitalist scheme of uh, thinking. Anarcho-capitalism, in my judgment, besides being a contradiction in terms and flirted with a historically discredited movement, does not seem to be to possess an objective standard for ensuring the protection of rights, inherent or otherwise. In fact, its alternative of competing defense agency is contradiction in terms and opens itself to the rule of whim instead of the concept of reason which the anarcho-capitalist claim is the basis of their action. And I draw this conclusion because of the failure of the anarcho-capitalist attitude to make a distinction between proper defense, to make a distinction between proper defense and retaliatory de retaliation by force of competing defense agencies. I hear, in other words, that the competing government or defense agency concept will offer a blank check to the initiation of physical force on the slightest provocation. A limited form of constitutional government, it seems to me, offers the best insurance. But before we can talk about the problems of the state, we must first talk about opposing the philosophical ideas which brought that state into being. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. St. John. The next speech will be by Mr. Roy Stiles, defending the anarcho capitalist position. First of all, I am not primarily a debater, I am a logician. That would be my approach. Mr. St. John got into the history of anarchism briefly. I, I want to take up his points in his remarks, uh, point by point, in my rebuttal. Right now, I want to begin by saying that he has penned a, a great deal of uh, bloodshed and other such things on, on anarchism as a movement. First of all, history is irrelevant validity of an idea. Secondly, historically, the state government has been responsible for more bloodshed, murder, robbery, and enslavement than any other institution known to man. Now, if we're going to attack anarchism as a movement on the grounds of what some of its perpetrators or adherents have done, I think that next to what the state has done, probably history is just a drop in the bucket. I want to cover very briefly the, uh, some of the basic ideas um, behind anarcho-capitalism. Mr. Anzani has said that anarchism seems not open, uh, anarcho-capitalism seems not open to debate or discussion. Yet, if you look, uh, just take two stacks of papers, take on the one of all the things written by investigators in favor of limited government opposing the ideas of anarcho-capitalism, and then take the things that we anarcho-capitalists have written, and you see which one is not considering the issue open to discussion. 
The main point and the only point is, can a government or a state exist without initiating physical force against those who have not themselves initiated physical force? Mr. St. John, I suggest, and all objectivists who advocate limited government are in the same philosophical position as YAF, which advocates the draft, slavery, the violation of individual rights, for what purpose, in order to, to protect individual rights. Now, I thought of a logician, briefly, if you know anything about a syllogism, you know that cannot have a premise in a series of syllogisms which states that X is true and ever come up logically to the conclusion that X is false. I suggest that the position of the government starts out with the premise that individual rights can never be, uh, never be violated and ends up advocating the violation of individual rights. And hence, I'm saying that the very concept of a government limited only to retaliation is a contradiction in terms. I'm saying it's a meaningless concept, in other words. Now, the quickest way of showing why a government must either initiate force, as I claim it must, or cease being the government, as an agency, that is, is the following. Suppose I were distraught with the services of the government in an objectivist society. This internet is taken out and let it sign them. One paragraph. Suppose that I judged, being as rational as I possibly could, that I could secure the protection of my contract and the retrieval of stolen goods at a cheaper price and with more efficiency. Suppose I either decide to set up an institution to attain these ends, or patronize one which a friend or business colleague has established. Now, if he, if he succeeds in setting up an agency which provides all the services of the objectivist government and restricts his more efficient activities to the use of retaliation against aggressors following objective principles and morality. There are only two alternatives as far as the government is concerned. A, it can use force or the threat of force against the new institution in order to keep its monopoly status in a given territory, thus initiating the use of physical force against one who has not himself initiated physical force. B, it can refrain from initiating force and allow the new institution to carry on its activities without interference. If it did this, then the objective government would become a truly marketplace phenomenon. That is, it would be merely one agency among many other competing agencies. Now, uh, the question then is, is, if an institution arose in an objective society which sold the service of retaliation or defense to customers voluntarily and agreed upon price, then this agency, as long as it follows objective principles, which are, of course, discoverable by man's reason, the government is, does not consist of, of men who have powers of epistemological leaders, and that is, they, they have no means of knowledge not available to other men. So if, if an institution sells this service voluntarily at an agreed-upon price, then it would not be initiating force, and any attempt to prevent it, I maintain, from selling such a service would if so facto involve the initiation of force. Force is forbid people to buy and sell any good which does not involve aggression would be to use initiatory force itself. Another way of putting this very simply is either what the government is doing is legitimate or it is not. If it's not, then the government should be dissolved immediately. They should cease and desist. If what the government is doing is legitimate, is if it follows objective principles, then it cannot properly stop others from doing exactly the same thing because by stopping them, it's saying that what you're doing is not legitimate. Okay. Now, now let's get to the notion of a limited government. Now, first of all, I'm going to say limited government, I think, is a redundancy. All governments are limited. No government can do everything. Every government, every institution, everything that exists has a specific nature. So the question is limited to what? The objective contention and the contention of many political philosophers is limited to the retaliatory use of physical force. How is it going to be limited? Well, the answer usually given is a rigid constitution. Okay. My response, if a constitution can limit the power of the state, 
that is, what the Constitution has such power. And why not eliminate the middleman? That is, if a document has such mysterious powers, then why not simply issue a document prohibiting everyone, every person from initiating court? <laughs> now, my point here is that you cannot answer the question of how to limit the power of government quite so simply. You cannot just say, limit government by a constitution. And more, you cannot at the same time both have an institution which is a final authority over the use of force and one which is limited. Because to limit something, one must have a means of limiting it, of doing that, in other words. And in the case of government, that means that, that means must either be a part of the state, a means of limiting it, or not. Now, if, if it is a part of the state, then the government limits itself, which is not very much of a limitation, I suggest. Now, if, if this means is not a part of the state, then the state is not such a final authority. Okay, um, just a couple of other quick points. Um, I'd like to get into questions. I'd like to uh, concentrate on theoretical things for a while. There are some experts here like Murray Rothbard, Moore, Sandhill, and Jarrett who can talk about how would you question. There's also a great book by Woodridge over there, Woodridge, I think the name is, which discusses how private courts and private police have functioned over for centuries and centuries. Now, I've just advocated a special concept theory. I want to one thing about that before I, I shut up. There was a thing called, I maintain, on any sort of social contract theory applied to a government. For a government is generally taken to be the supreme authority in a specific geographical territory. But this, if this is so, and if the relationship between the government and the citizen is contractual, that is, if there's a constitution, the constitution is a contract between the citizen and the government, this brings in the concept of agency. Can the citizen break the contract with the government unilaterally, as he could if he were, if he were literally his agent? Or must the government itself have ultimate authority over this contract, as it does all others? In short, must the citizen have the sanction of the government before he can release it from its duty? If not, then I suggest that the concept of representation, and I'd like to elaborate on this later, does not apply to a government, not to a limited objectivist type of government or any other kind of government, because the government cannot be elected. We cannot dismiss it at will. In fact, since it is the final authority, it can interpret. It can interpret the law and can interpret the Constitution itself, but it can decide what you can do. You can't decide what it can do, which is the case if it were in fact your agency. We will now begin the rebuttals, and first of the rebuttal will be Mr. Child. I would like to say, as a preface to my rebuttal, that I disagree with every major point which Mr. St. John made. <laughs> Uh, first of all, my background in the history of anarchist thought, I was formerly a student of philosophy and history at the State University of New York at Buffalo under Dr. Lewis Perry. I did a special seminar under him in anarchist thought. He's a co-editor of Patterns of Anarchy, one of the most definitive uh, questions of essays. So I know a little bit about history of anarchist thought. I'd like to, I'd like to uh, touch on what Mr. St. John said here. One, he said, historically, anarchism has postulated the abolition of property rights. This is not true. Not true with Pagan, it's not true with any anarchist you've ever heard of. What is in fact true is that they have a different theory of justice and property rights. What is in fact true is that, is that we disagree with them. We anarcho-capitalists disagree with them. They hold one theory and we hold another. But every single anarchist has always criticized, with the possible exception of Kropotkin, has always criticized the existing status quo on the basis of it being founded on an unjust distribution of property titles. That is, they, ab they advocated the abolition of, of, of property in some cases, but only where they thought it was unjust. Two, Mr. St. Long says that anarchism has been collectivistic. 
this is not true, uh, especially among uh, United States American, Native American anarchists. Uh, anarchists. I refer you to James A. Martin's book, Men Against the State. The Native American anarchist tradition is completely individualistic and is completely found on, on the doctrine of individual rights. Three, uh, the point I made before, he goes into history a lot, but I submit that history is relevant. Four, he says that anarchism cannot protect any right. Well, I've maintained that the very concept of limited government is self-contradictory, but involves using initiatory force or a violation of rights to protect rights. If this is true, then the absence of government or the absence of a state is the only possible moral social condition of existence proper to man. What is a state of no government or no state that is a condition of anarchism? Anarchism means no state. Anarchism, to use Benjamin Tucker's definition, advocates the absence of the state and, and uh, advocate uh, having all these areas and then controlled by individuals and voluntary associations. Um, he said that anarchists have historical claim that men inherently are good. This is again not true. It's true in some cases, not true in others. Again, it's irrelevant. Uh, six, he says anarchism rules out question and debate, rules out the possibility of men using their minds to come up with a moral limited government. My answer to this is it is impossible to come up with, with a viable, workable, self-contradictory institution. Uh, seven, he said that we have the assumption that all we must do is sweep away the apparatus of the state. The theory is not necessary. It's not necessary to dig into ideas. Again, far much more work has been done by anarcho-capitalists in this area than by advocates of limited government. Rand's writings in the field of political philosophy are relatively uh, sparse and, and few and far between as compared with the writings of like Wolfhard, Wolfstein, Tannehill, myself, and many, many others. And it's also, again, absurd to say that we rule out debate when it's, when it's mostly advocates of limited government who haven't said anything. Eight, he said, uh, again, that we advocate overthrowing the state rather than, rather than uh, mere ideas. This is not an either-or dichotomy. Uh, we can advocate both. We advocate spreading certain ideas, getting rid of the collectivist mentality, getting rid of the doctrine that people have to use aggression to gain their end, getting rid of the mystique of the state before we can do this. I, I don't know of any anarchist who thinks that you can abolish the state before you establish certain conditions, including uh, basically starting to destroy some myths. Um, he said that anarchism cannot validate the concept of individual rights. Well, I hold that the concept of individual rights is based on man's nature as a rational being, and the way you validate a concept is by means of reason. If you're in a lot of government, doesn't it end up different? You do it by means of reason. The government has no special, non-rational, non-sensory means of knowledge. Therefore, it has no rational, non no non-sensory uh, means of, of coming up with definitions of property rights, which other men don't also have. The way you do this, obviously, is through, through reasoning and libertarian social philosophy. Finally, he said that competing agencies offer blank check on initiative towards I think this is, this is blatantly cool. The agencies which most act anarchists advocate would be uh, limited because they would have specific customers who could fire them and things like this. Now, there are problems with this, granted, but I maintain again that nowhere in the history of mankind has there ever been a government, a state, which is not guilty of such, such crimes against humanity, against individuals, such mass bloodshed, enslavement, slaughter, robbery, as to make the public crimes of one teeny defense agency to be almost irrelevant by comparison. This is the end of slide one.